Burst Sport Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Burst Sport Podcast. I'm your host James Dowden and this is the podcast that interviews people from across the world of sport. In today's episode I'm joined by Neil Smythe, current media and operations director at Hashtag United, the ninth division English football club with millions of online followers. In this podcast we discuss Neil's fascinating journey in digital sports media since leaving the University of Bristol. We talk about his work with Soccer AM, being part of the growing football fan channel movement and creating content in the most sports industry in a career that has seen him travel all over the world. Finally, we discuss his recent work at Hashtag and what it's like working at one of the most unique football clubs in the world. Good evening, Neil. Uh, how are you? Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh hi! It's uh, no, it's really good to uh, to be doing it. I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I must say, I've I've uh, I've had COVID, uh, so I've had an interesting few weeks. But I'm I'm through the worst. So yeah, looking forward to it. All here now and ready for the show. So uh, just to start off, I believe you grew up in Oxfordshire, and were you always into sport from a young age? And what are some of your earliest sporting memories? Um, I suppose I was. Um, I, I actually grew up all over the place. I'm, I'm, I'm originally a Yorkshire lad, but we moved to Oxfordshire when I was um, starting for senior school. So when I was about 11. Um, I think before that I'd played quite a lot of rugby league and I, I was a Leeds United fan and sport was always part of my life. Um, during secondary school, it became a, a major part because I became um, um, a pretty decent uh, school and club athlete so I uh, represented Oxford City and Oxfordshire schools at uh, cross country and athletics for a few years so and then I did um, uh, a PECSE so um, my nickname at the time was Sport Billy which uh, which I, I guess stood me in good stead you, you wouldn't say it if you saw me now but yeah sport was really a part of my uh, my youth um, and I became an Oxford United fan and uh, was lucky enough to see us in the first division back then, which was, I suppose, Premier League as you know it now. So sport's always been a, a huge part of my life. You'll probably get on to that, but I didn't really think it was going to be my career at the time. So you then came to Bristol to read Russian French. What were your memories of your time here? Oh, well, it was a long time ago, but um, obviously I, I knew I was going to be talking to you and it, it's brought memories albeit very vague, uh, flooding back. I, I had an amazing four years, um, three years obviously at Bristol and, and, and a, a, another year abroad. Um, and I look back on it with great fondness. Um, I went to Goldney Hall in my first year, um, spent uh, most of my time actually not doing sports, although I did captain the ultimate frisbee team in i think our first our first year i don't know if you, you know if you still have that yeah um, yeah no, the uh, the frisbee society is still going yeah yeah so i didn't really do much sport I'd, by then i'd given up athletics um but i spent most of my time doing drama so as you know bristol probably still now has quite a vibrant um drama scene you know made up of the drama department and and those who do it extracurricular at the um at the union so i spent most of my time uh, in tramsoc and reunions whether it was acting or, or did a bit of directing and uh no i had a fantastic time there um i'm sure many of the haunts i used to um frequent are, aren't there but you tell me the hybrid vaults is still going strong which yeah. makes me makes me happy 
Yep, going very strong. Um, this podcast actually is um, being recorded uh, a mere five minute walk from the Highbury Vault. So yeah, I can uh, I can personally attest uh, to the fact that it's still going strong. And yeah, so you mentioned that as one of your favourite haunts. Um, oh, I miss it. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, and then kind of moving on afterwards, uh, I'm from Bristol. How did you first get into the world of sports media post-university? How long have you got? I mean, I, I get asked this a lot because I get asked for kind of um, tips and guidance in terms of how to get into the media. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. But I, I, I really fell into it, which is probably not the right answer. I think when I left university, I think I still wanted to work in the theatre. So either wanted to act or direct. But I either didn't have the talent or didn't have the guts or both. Uh, and, and I didn't really, I didn't really make a proper go of it. So straight after university, after the summer, I got a job at the London Palladium, um, front of house. Why I don't know, because I think I, I, I wanted to be in that kind of theatre world and then perhaps assumed something would happen from there. Uh, but I worked, I think, three years there, front of house at the Palladium. Um, ripping tickets, selling programs. Uh, I became a VIP butler there. I did the backstage tours there, which kind of appealed to my theatrical bent uh, and worked at the Drury Lane Theatre as well. So I was in that theatre community, but I, I did very little to turn it into a career. Um, and then I think I, I did that, say, for a few years, and I didn't really, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it certainly wasn't sport at that point. I think I was closer to working in the travel industry because I'd, I'd done a few years as a rep as well. Um, but I really fell into it. Uh, when I came back from one of my summers as a rep, I applied for a job at the newly formed Channel 5 as a duty officer. And uh, a duty officer is, is basically, I suppose, customer service for, for the broadcast industry. As part of your charter to become a broadcaster, you have to have that um, instant line of, of feedback between audience and, and broadcaster. So I was answering the, the, uh, the questions and complaints for Channel 5, which when it started were numerous because it was terrible. If you were one of the 15% of the population who could get Channel 5 in those days, it was terrible. So we were kept very busy. That was my first dip into the media world. And I've kind of, I've never looked back, but if you look at where my career's gone from then to now, it's gone a, a, a kind of a strange route. So that was, a, that was an administrative way in, but I kind of knew I wanted to be on the production side. Once I'd got into TV, I knew that's, where I wanted to go and I guess whilst many people in the TV industry certainly in those days went down the route of sending hundreds of letters kind of scattergun if you're lucky enough you get a job as a runner and you, you work for free and then you, you make the contacts I kind of got in through the back door by doing admin jobs uh, I then got a job at Sky scheduling promos which is as dull as it sounds. But again, it was one step closer to a, in, in inverted commas, proper TV job. 
and then from there it will probably come to I, I got I guess I got lucky and I got my first TV production break and, and as I say from there it's 20 very fast years you say you ended up kind of at Sky working on Soccer AM, I believe, uh, alongside the likes of Tim Lovejoy, Helen Chamberlain. What was it like working in that environment uh, at Sky? Wow. So I would be condensing eight of the craziest years of my life. Um, the highest highs and some of the lowest lows. To, to, to follow on from my previous kind of answer, I got in because it was my, it was my favorite TV show at the time. And I was there at Sky and sent a, an email to Tim and said, look, I don't have any experience. By then I was 28, 29, so I wasn't you know, fresh out of uni. I said, but I really want to learn the ropes and I love your show. Can I come in on Saturdays and work for free? And it was as simple as he met me, there were new roles uh, opened up and I got a job. So that when I say I was lucky in terms of my TV break, I guess I took advantage of the situation. I guess I pushed myself forward, but I was lucky that there was a role available at the time, right? I didn't have to do that three years as a runner. In terms of when I got there, yeah, just a crazy ride. But what was special about those days was it was, it was a family. It was a family. I think we all did the show, or those who lasted did the show because they believed in it and they loved doing it. I think as a result, we all worked too hard. And to a certain extent, Tim worked us too hard and he knows that. But we were happy to do that because of the show, we were dedicated uh, to, to creating something amazing every Saturday. For somebody who had that theatrical bent, it allowed me to not only learn the ropes in telly, but also do ridiculous things on camera that I, I, I never probably would have done as a, as a proper actor. Um, and the other thing is, I think for somebody new to the industry, it was the best and the hardest grounding I could have expected because it was a small team on a small budget and we did everything, you know, from in those days researching on, 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 on fanzines because there was no internet to speak of, uh, to booking guests, to writing scripts, to editing goals and running around sky looking for tapes at 3am in the morning. Um, yeah. VT edits, audio edits, eventually then for me, script writing, um, show running, gallery producing, stupid skits on camera, wearing ridiculous wigs. Um, it was a thorough grounding in broadcast um, production, I guess. And, and, and the skills that it equipped me with are still obviously with me today, even though, even though I, I use them in a, in a very different environment nowadays. But then... I think the thing about Soccer AM as well was that it's not just a show. It's not just a job. It was for us a lifestyle. And we were so lucky to get the benefits we got from that show as well. These were the days before social media. So it wasn't that our profiles were massive, but 
we were at that stage where we would get invited to just crazy events, you know, backstage with some of our musical heroes, Champions League finals as VIP guests. You know, I got a little bit of that kind of more glamorous end of the industry. And I'm thankful for that. But on the flip side, I remember days when I was sleeping under my desk. So it was, it was eight years of, as I say, amazing highs and amazing lows, but I don't regret a single second. Absolutely. And you kind of mentioned that family feel. Do you feel that was something that contributed to the success of the show and the cult following that it had at the time? Yeah, we were essentially a bunch of mates dicking about on TV. And we had amazing license to do that. Look, none of us were professional performers. Obviously, Tim and Feathers and what have you are now, but we were just a bunch of blokes writing and, and watching football with a, a very skewed kind of eyepiece, a very skewed point of view. And I think when Soccer M got it right, and we didn't always get it right, I have to say that, um, it just it, we, we looked at football from an alternative point of view. And I think I look back at it now and I think it was um it was a social TV show before social media existed because we always tried to put fans first. And as I say, sometimes it fell absolutely flat, but Tim and Sky, to their credit, gave us that freedom. And when we failed, we failed publicly live on telly. And that was often as funny as when we got things right. So it taught me uh, not to take not to take TV too seriously. And I think, as I say, when we got it right, it was a it was a show that we were all proud of making. And we were we were friends, but also perhaps a bit too close at times. And I've certainly never felt as as close, in a good way and a bad way, to my uh, professional colleagues as, as as I did back then. And uh yeah just just incredible times and then also i believe you worked with tim lovejoy uh, in the years after uh, you left soccer m and sky uh, on some various projects yeah well the kind of the short version of that was he and we had seen the soccer m brand grow massively i was there for eight years but i wasn't there right at the very beginning but by 2006 7 Social media had started to become a thing. Um, I had run Tim's MySpace. And I'm sorry, this, everything I say makes me feel even older, but you have to understand back then it was MySpace and that, that was it. Um, I'd run Tim's MySpace and we could see this new audience and new value in content away from the norm of the broadcast world. We could also see Sky kind of squeezing the brand drier. And I think from, from Tim's point of view and ours was, we weren't necessarily seeing the benefit of that. I, from my point of view, wasn't progressing in my career as much as I could. Because I think in those days, Sky was so skewed towards the live rights that if you did what, I did, which was almost a unique role at Sky. There was nowhere else I could go. And in fact, one of the top bosses at Sky sat me down and said, Neil, 
you're of no use to me as a producer until you can produce a live OB. And for someone who'd been grafting away in a studio and in, in dark edit suites for five years, I kind of took offense at that. And so all this came together at the same time. And Tim formed this uh, joint venture with Simon Fuller, who, who was managing Spice Girls and David Beckham at the time. And he persuaded a lot of us to leave at the same time in 2007 and set up this, what was a very innovative video project with Simon Fuller. Um, and if I tell, told you now what it was, again, it would feel anachronistic in the sense that we wanted to create broadcast quality digital video content. Now, now nowadays that seems so normal. It's like, well, that's a good YouTube channel, right? But in those days, YouTube wasn't a thing over here. So we did that and we had to create our own platform that cost a million plus. And then we created content that, again, when we got it right, I was proud of. We created daft sketches and uh, we filmed live gigs. We'd interview sports stars and musicians and had a really vibrant community. And a lot of it was right. And a lot of it actually still does the rounds on Facebook, especially. I'll get sent a link to a goldfish gag that I directed, I don't know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago. And the girl in the gag, who was like six at the time, now has a kid. You know, it's that, it's that long ago. Oh, wow, that's incredible, yeah. yeah. But, but there are still some Channel B sketches, search Channel B, Channel B sketches floating around that we're really proud of. Very rough around the edges, but we're really proud of. Um, but it taught me a very, very valuable lesson, which I have never forgotten in digital media, which is you can have the best ideas, you can have the best production talent, but in the digital world, if you don't know how to market your content, you'll die. And that's what happened to us. We had all the production talent we needed and probably too much, but we didn't know anything about digital marketing. And I remember endless meetings with Tim and us throwing ridiculous marketing ideas at the wall, like let's buy a bunch of phone numbers and not knowing how to get that content out there. So it died after about a year. But the annoying thing is about a year later, YouTube became a thing and YouTube originals became a thing and YouTube started investing in exactly the sort of product and project we were working on. So it's very easy to look back at something like that and say we were ahead of the curve. But had we been a year later, Channel B may well be one of those YouTube channels that are right up there in the higher echelons. Um, but what it... <laughs> What it taught me, again, was about digital marketing, but also it, it gave me a skill set that I am using today. Because as much as Soccer AM was a, a very hands-on environment, we didn't shoot, we didn't edit. In those days, you produced an edit or you directed a shoot with somebody else pushing all the buttons or doing the shooting. 
Once we started moving into this digital environment, we had to do it all. So I learned to shoot, I learned to edit. And by the time I was made redundant, I, I then had a, a broadcast skill set, but also a self-shooting, self-editing skill set that stood me in good stead for, for, for the next 10 years or so. So, uh, and then in, in, in 2008, I think it was, 2009, when it, it collapsed, we all kind of went our separate ways. And I, I, I haven't worked with, with Tim since, but we've all kept in touch. Oh, that's very nice to hear. And you've kind of mentioned that self-starting, perhaps a broad range of skills. Do you feel that's something that's even perhaps more crucial these days uh, in the world of sports media and its ever-evolving landscape? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think my career over the past 12 years has been a case of trying to remain relevant. And to a certain extent, the older I get, the more I have to work to be relevant because there are elements of the digital sports world that are so new and so fresh. If you compare TikTok to broadcast TV, you know, it's, it's, it, it would make your mind kind of jump up and down. And it's, it's crazy, the, the skill set I've had to learn. But whether you're 50 or whether you're out of, fresh out of university, I think the key for this world is to be agile, to adapt, and to never stop learning. Because let's be honest, we've seen a huge disruption in the last 10 years, but this is only the start. So it may be the only start of, only the start of, of your career if you're 23, but if you don't learn the next TikTok and the next um, you know, big landscape shift in content, you will be obsolete within five years. So yeah, the last 10 years have been a case of how to remain relevant to a certain extent. Obviously, in parallel with that, my experience grows. My experience as a manager and a strategist grows. So, so I'm, I'm constantly growing that skill set, I guess. Many of our listeners will have heard of the YouTube channel Copper90, and I believe you were there at the start of the, the channel, its early growth. What are your memories from your time there? Well, I was, I was headhunted to launch Copper90 uh, because of what I'd done, I guess, in, in the football content world, which was obviously you know, really good for the ego, but also came at a time when I really needed a job. Um, the concept, and I think I already mentioned YouTube originals, but just for, for reference, at that point, YouTube had a specific strategy to encourage professional content creators because they knew there wasn't that much longevity and brand value in a bunch of random videos of dogs on skateboards. So they knew they had to stimulate the market to create better content. And so they were giving, they were putting out a tender for people to pitch for professional channels across a range of verticals. And so Copper90 was their first football channel that essentially Google and YouTube monetized. So I came in, the first thing I, I, I remember was the sheer budget we had at our disposal. It was money that I'd never seen before. The second thing were the ridiculous deliverables that they were asking in return for that money. 
they were asking for essentially hours of content every week for a couple of million quid a year. And Copper 90, uh, I suppose still to this day, pride themselves on kind of really artfully produced short form content. Uh, so it was, it was quite a sea change for me, uh, I guess, to a certain extent. But in those early months, it was a case of hustling, building the team, thinking the ideas, um, testing, piloting the ideas. Um, and then we, we, we launched. And uh, I didn't really last that long. I still don't know to this day whether I got sacked or whether they just wanted a uh, new blood, which I suppose is probably the same thing, but my contract wasn't renewed. Um, uh, being honest, I don't think we grew as fast as YouTube or Copper wanted us to grow. What was frustrating was I'd helped build the team. I'd helped uh, create some of the content and, and, and develop some of the content strands that, that stuck around for years, like comments below. I'd identified a lot of the talent, poet and Vuj, I remember. And I was days away from meeting KSI's agent because we knew back then, and it's still the case now, but on a different level, we knew if you got someone like him in to collaborate with on a, on, on a paid basis, the channel would grow rapidly. And it, as I say, it's frustrating that a couple of months later, the channel shot up uh, and, and I was gone. So we all hit bumps in the road in our career and that was a huge one for me. But what goes around comes around. My social media manager back then was uh, a young Spencer Owen. Uh, about eight, nine years later, he offers me a job. Uh, so, so I suppose there's a nugget of, of, uh, of, of, of uh, a tip in there to anyone in the industry is to try to be nice. Yeah, so you mentioned various talent that you worked with, Poet, Vuge, and Spencer as well. And just focusing in on uh, Spencer, perhaps, was there the seed for the idea of a Hashtag United even eight, nine years ago? There was. And if I went through my notes, I've got them somewhere. Uh, in those days, it was called Hashtag FC. Uh, we even got as far as getting a designer, a motion graphics designer, to come up with a, a, a teaser that I've recently been sent. But it was a very different project to how it is now. Um, I think in those days, our idea was to turn it into one of these almost user-defined football clubs where the audience decides what happens on the pitch. Again, it was, it was fairly original in those days, but since then it's been tried several times and almost every time has ended up as a, as a disaster. Um, the reason why we didn't push ahead with it at the time was our audience wasn't at scale and therefore we wouldn't have had the relevant input or engagement we needed. So yeah, the seeds were sown, but a very different type of seed to the to one it eventually became. Your next posting, uh, I believe, was also in the world of YouTube, but this time uh, a, a channel known as the Football Republic, but also a fan channel, Full Time Devils. And I was just wondering, how did that move come about? Um, 
what was your experience at these perhaps slightly different mediums to the one you'd uh, worked in previously? Well, just to kind of round, round up my career, because again, I think it has a relevance. Since I was made redundant in, what, 2009, uh, I have taken on a series of longer-term contracts because I'm a, I'm a family man who has to pay the bills. But in between, I've worked as a, as a freelancer and self-employed um, I guess, producer, director, um, which is a role that I think many people fulfill at one point or another to, to, to pay the bills. And that, that in those days was shooting and editing out of a backpack uh, on any manner of shoots, not just in sports, you know, in lifestyle, in music and what have you. Um, and I think I became known as a bit of a, a go-to guy for PR agencies because I could shoot, I could edit, I could work with talent. I was good under pressure. And and that was all those kind of skills from Sky uh, kind of molded into one. So I did that to kind of make ends meet. Um, Some of the better jobs I did during that time were, were were working for the FA. Um, I, I did two world cups within the FA's content department um, I also went to Trinidad for the very ill-fated um, junket trip to promote the 2018 World Cup. Um, so I spent a couple of days with Beckham and his academy there. Spent a couple of days flying an Al-Fayed's Chinook helicopter. Oh, wow. Around the, around the grounds of, of, of the north, again, as part of this England 2018 pitch. Crazy job. Crazy job. All the FIFA delegates and me, we'd land, I'd shoot, we'd take off, I'd edit, we'd land, I'd send the B-roll. It's just a crazy, crazy job. So I did all these, all these jobs to make ends meet. Um, the Fremantle thing was, was the next kind of four years, solid four years of my career. And again, a, a huge a huge job. It turned into a huge job. It started very simply as the boss of Fremantle's interactive department, knowing that there was a change in the football content landscape, knowing that as a Manchester United fan, his needs were underserved in terms of relevant content and wanting to create something to fill that void. I wasn't a Manchester United fan. But I persuaded him that my, my skill set and my relevance were, were right for the job. And so full-time devil started at zero. If you fast forward three years, we had seven fan channels, 35 million organic monthly views, staff of 20 to 25 across three locations. And we had a bona fide sports network of these fan channels. And this was at the same time Arsenal Fan TV were, were, were growing and, uh, and the Red Men were around. Um, and it was an amazing adventure to grow something from zero to, to 35 million. And if you look at the videos, if Stephen's kept them up on the channel, you'll see how we pivoted very quickly and we learned very quickly. Um, I talk probably more about this now than, than Soccer AM or anything because there's a real... There's a real, there's a real 
I guess, polarity between uh, you either love or hate the, the whole fan channel thing, right? And I could talk for hours, and I won't. I could talk for hours about whether the fan channel movement is good or bad for, for, for the, the digital content landscape. Um, from my point of view, it was there to give fans a voice because as we know as sports fans, we like having a say, whether it's down the pub or online. And it was to connect Manchester United fans on a global level because I've always been of the opinion that in this country that we're a little bit old-fashioned when it comes to fans. There's still an element of you're not a real fan if you weren't born two miles away from the ground and you haven't missed the reserve game in 25 years, right? Things have changed a little bit as we become, as it becomes more of a global sport. But I wanted to say and create something that gave you validity, whether you're a United fan in Singapore or Salford, right? And and I think when we got it right, that, that, um, that came across. So almost focusing, you'd say, on the global aspect of fandom and uh, supporting a club. Leading on from this, uh, how was it uh, managing the viral nature of such platforms in your time at Full-Time Devils? Uh, obviously, a very prominent example of this would be Andy Tate and the, the supports in place for potential people going viral. Yeah. It's really interesting on several levels. So the, for the uninitiated, the short story is we originally didn't do fan cams. Uh, fan cams, as you'd know, like Arsenal Fan TV. We didn't do them. We wanted to create a range of, of content. But we did. And we did in the first season when United did well. And, and they performed well. And then the second season, when it all kind of fell apart at United, we started to see the tone of these videos changing. And this guy called Andy Tate uh, came to us one day and did this now infamous rant about Moyes being the biggest fool in Manchester. Now, I actually can't remember whether I was there on the day or not, because by then I was, I was kind of managing the team rather than not there on the ground. But the way that clip went viral taught me a good few lessons about the industry and also about people. It didn't go viral because of anything we did. It went viral because, I mean, it, it, it garnered views. Okay, very quickly it garnered views on YouTube, but it didn't go viral. What happened was a guy uh, in Norway, really talented guy, um, started rotoscoping, so cutting Andy Tate out of this video and placing him in other scenarios, which is now an established thing, but in those days it was we'd never seen this before. And then within a couple of months, Andy Tate was in Star Wars videos, Star Wars vines and uh, in music videos. And, and, and he became one of the really first Vine memes, I guess. And tens of millions of Andy Tate's uh, Vines were, were being watched. And of course, whilst that happened, they then found us on, on YouTube and eventually we'd had millions of views there. So that was the first I'd seen of, of, of a clip like that going, going viral which raised questions in terms of the strategy from then on. And I'd be wrong in saying I didn't see the value. Obviously, we saw the value. But what I've always been at pains to point out ever since is that 
my opinion never wavered in that we had to provide a cross-section of content and a cross-section of views. And I've also always been um, really tight on an ethical line in terms of the truth of content. I don't like faked content. And in this world, I can promise you, obviously after Andy Tate happened, we at the United Channel saw people then come up to us with pre-prepared rants. I, as the exec producer, would be able to spot those and uh, on many occasions I would veto them from, from, from going on the channel. Um, but obviously since then I, I, I know that the kind of the fan channel rant has become so, so, so well known in, in, in our kind of media world. Um, and it has made stars of some of these fans. To your point about how you deal with that, as a, an experienced TV producer, I was well aware of the responsibility you have as a producer towards your contributors. You know, you, you, we've all seen stories about um, X Factor and um, um, Love Island and, 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 and Big Brother. And the, we talk about the duty of care towards our contributors. Well, bear in mind, I was at Fremantle at the time who made, you know, the likes of X Factor. So we talked a lot about that duty of care. And so when Andy Tate did go viral, I knew best practice, I, what I hoped was a best practice in terms of making sure that we didn't put him at risk. What happened actually was that he, he went quiet for a few months um, and we respected that. And then he came back to us and we had kind of plans in place. And ultimately what happened with Andy Tate is we helped him put a roof over his head because we cut him a deal from, from a, uh, a bizarre project that came off the back of this. A student in Leeds created a soundboard app using Andy Tate's voice, our copyright, and his tech nows. We cut a three-way deal whereby the student kept a third, we kept a third, and Andy kept a third. This, this thing went viral in the app charts and I don't know the exact figure and I couldn't tell you the exact figure but Andy Tate tells me that gave him the deposit for his house. It's so easy now for any of us to become viral with one tweet. With that comes a huge responsibility. We all need to understand that whether we're professional or amateur creators. Your life can turn in a matter of seconds now with the internet for good and bad so we've all got to bear that in mind when we put ourselves forward and if we are in charge of talent understand the duty of care that comes with it football however though isn't the only sport you've worked in uh, i believe you've worked in formula e and motorsports as well how did that compare to your previous experience in in football and do you feel this form of motor racing without emissions is the future i loved i loved my time with formula e it was it was only about a year 
Um, but I have a massive amount of respect for the fact that they've created a brand and a sport from nothing to where they are in what five years. And also a brand that uh, has um, a set of ethics that is made for the 21st century. I think they're incredible. In terms of the job, it's very different because I think number one, I was working for an agency for the first time, working for a big uh, rights owner. And so that relationship is quite a difficult one to navigate, even though Formula E were fantastic. It was very difficult as well because they were a fast-growing sport. And so strategy would change often, structure would change often, staff would change often. There's small negatives. The positives were they were willing to try almost anything. And some of the videos that Little Dot Studios, who I worked with, or Formula E have created, especially the hero content, They've done some amazing hero activations, like the, the car versus the cheetah that I was partly involved with, that have helped propel that brand to where they are today. I think they were very forward-thinking in their use of influencers as well and dipping the toe into esports. They are an amazing forward-thinking brand. The sport will continue to grow, and it will be really interesting to see how that world of F1 and Formula E intersects because there is a clash coming because of the ban on 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 essentially fossil fuels and and, and that type of motorsport in the future it's coming and formula e in a really good position so yeah fantastic sport great year and that brings us uh, nicely on to uh, your current and the most recent position uh, as media and operations director at hashtag united whom you joined in in may 2018 uh, for our listeners uh, who don't know what Hashtag United is, it's a football team originally founded by the aforementioned Spencer Owen in 2016 that originally played exhibition matches. However, the club quickly gained significant online following and then entered the official English Football League system two seasons ago in the Essex Senior League. The club has gone on tour in America uh, and has also played at Wembley Stadium. The club also has an esports team as well as youth reserve and a women's team. So that's kind of the summary of Hashtag United. But um, what's it like from the inside and working day to day for the club? Good job with the summary. It's tighter than I could say it. Um, well, first thing I should say is, is, is to kind of round up what I said earlier, which is that uh, I, I was brought in because um, Spen remembered me from kind of eight or nine years previous. I'd, I'd, I'd since hired his brother to work on our fan channels, Saunders. Um, who then came and, and, and did some work with me at Formula E. So we'd always kind of kept in touch. And, um, but when he said he was taking the club to the next level, and when he explained the breadth of the project, I was sold. As I say, I, w- I was really enjoying my job at Formula E, but this was an opportunity I, I, I couldn't really say no to. Essentially what I do is anything you see that's public facing for the club um, goes through me. So on a day-to-day level, it's, it's trying to run the social channels, uh, keep an eye on the day-to-day whilst also keeping an eye on the strategy for the future. And then on the, the operation side, it can be literally 
anything you think I, look, you've worked in non-league football so you know what I'm going to say but in non-league football you have to wear even more hats than I wore at Soccer AM you know I, I can be making sure the, the manager's got enough kit I can be liaising between Adidas and uh, the team I could be creating branded content for our partners I could be booking mascots I could be locking up uh, after a match day. I could be looking after security. So it's a, it's a varied role because it's a family business. There's Spencer, who runs it, but also is his own person, running his own channel. Seb running commercial. Alex essentially looking after finance and office. Uh, and then there's obviously the, 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 the management staff football coaches and, and, and the teams, but it's a really tight team. So everybody just has to muck in. So from one day to the next, honestly, my job is massively varied. Um, but number one is making sure that we produce the content we, we, we think the audience wants to see, which, is, which has been hard this year. And another lesson I've learned this year is you may think you know how to engage your audience, but ultimately your audience is going to tell you. I thought our audience would be interested in a wider variety of content than actually they are. And during first lockdown, we tried a lot of different ideas that, that, that failed. And again, a kind of nugget I always bear in mind is in our world, fail fast and move on. You know, with the qualitative or quantitative data we have now, so either sheer numbers or audience telling you, in digital content, you know pretty quickly whether you have a hit or a miss on your hands. And you've got to dust yourself off, forget your ego, try again. So we've had a lot of content this year, including the most recent video we posted, which was a simple catch-up between Spen and the manager, which just hasn't, hasn't flown. So I think the most important thing for us right now is to stay positive, know what the long-term aim is, and not knee-jerk. Football will start again. We'll find other ways to engage our audience, and Twitch is a great example of that. Um, but yeah, aside from the awful year we've had with COVID, um, from a footballing perspective, the, the club's going places. And I still believe what I believed two years ago, which is it's, it's one of the most innovative football clubs in, in the world. And I'm proud to work for them. Absolutely. And for our listeners who might not be as acquainted with the FA Cup, it's a much bigger competition uh, than the third round in January. The kind of general apathy that we see from Premier League teams today, it's, in fact, starts much earlier in the preliminary rounds with, with teams such as Hashtag United. And they even featured live on the BBC this year. Would you say that's been perhaps the highlight of your time at the club so far? If you ask me my highlight, it was uh, winning the league. Um, winning the league in our first season when we had such a bad start, when we had what seemed like at the time a lot of the community against us, thinking we were in there for banter, inverted commas, and we wouldn't last the season. So to prove those doubters wrong on and off the field um, when we won the league, at possibly the most historic old non-league ground in London was fantastic. And if you look back at that video against Hackney Wick, the moment that got it for me was 
me stuck in the tiniest changing room we'd been in all season, wedged against the back wall with 30 blokes going crazy, champagne, beer, the manager hashtagging it, breaking a camera because champagne had just drenched it, just feeling part of something. We all feel it as football fans, right? But feeling part of something that we'd created was amazing. So that was my highlight. FA Cup was, was fantastic. And so, again, for those who don't know, we made a debut this year because you can't automatically get a place in it. We came in at the, I think, extra preliminary round. We are the, we're in the ninth tier of English football. Um, the lowest you can be in the FA Cup is one tier below. But you have to be probably two years old, which is why it was our debut. Um, so we, uh, we'd, I think, played two games and squeaked through. And then the third game was, was live on the BBC. And another lesson, again, my, my career is all about learning. And, and uh, if I ever stop learning, that's when I give up. In our digital world, where we engage, you know, teenage fans, and we do it ourselves, it's quite easy to think that the likes of the BBC don't have the power they once had. We've, we saw our best ever month in September in terms of acquisition of new fans, in terms of views, because we were live on the BBC. So the BBC has taken us that next level again in terms of awareness. And also the FA Cup, as you said, it's, it's much kind of derided at the professional end now. But I can tell you at our end, less so this season because money's been cut, right? Prize money's been cut. But had we had the run we had this season, which is winning three games and losing the fourth, and once on the BBC... In a normal season, for a club at our, our level, that probably would have set us up for the season, I would say. Um, so the prize money is really valuable to clubs at this level. And the excitement and the journey and the adventure we gave the fans as well was incredible. Annoyingly, we were only allowed 300 fans in. But had COVID not been a thing, we'd have probably had six 800, maybe even 1,000 at Bowers. And those days would have been even sweeter. It's been an incredible season already, and we're, what, a third of the way through. At the start, there was, there was a bit of criticism from perhaps perceived traditional non-league fans in the way you're entering uh, the footballing pyramid, and perhaps there's a bit of a negative stigma towards the club. How do you feel that's changed since then? Uh, do you think the situation has improved in that regard? So it definitely has improved. And it's one of the things I and probably Spencer and Debs especially will be most proud of. We have turned around the opinions of many of the doubters. We're not going to convince everybody. That's fine. You can't do that in life. But I think you'd be hard pushed now to have a valid case against us. Come and watch us, experience the game and then say you don't like us. That's fine. That's fine. But in those days, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, and the hardest day was um, when we were announced as entering the non-league system. And to be honest, that was a mess, not of our own doing. The FA put us in the wrong, the wrong league, the league we didn't request, and a league which was oversubscribed, which meant essentially 
we were taking somebody's place in the Spartan South Midland League, which was in uh, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. We're based in Essex. So that criticism we got there was, would have been justified if it was our decision, but it wasn't. It was the FAs. We got it overturned. We got put in the right league and in a league which was undersubscribed. So accusations of us taking somebody else's place were unfounded because it was a new league and was undersubscribed. So there was that taken care of. We weren't relegating anybody. The next criticism was, okay, these are a bunch of YouTubers. They won't be able to hack the regular training and they'll make a mockery of the game. And we knew that was never going to happen because of the guy we brought in to manage. Devs, our manager, has been in the non-league system up to, I think, you know, tier, a step two uh, for the 20 years or so. He was, he was practically a pro. So he, he, he knew it back to front and he's got a really strong set of ethics and has not let us put a foot wrong, I believe, over the last two and a half years. We are very respectful of the non-league community. I've got a massive amount of personal respect and indeed I've fallen in love with non-league football. I wish I'd discovered it years ago. And to kind of play the non-league ball for, for, for a minute, um, everything I was told about non-league football is what I now love about it. But in the, initially I thought it was a bit of um, uh, I thought it was a bit of a hipster thing that people said, oh yeah, come and watch a non-league team because you know we're not very popular and you can have a pint. It's fantastic. I would encourage anybody, and I'm not saying this to be a hipster, anybody, go and just go and watch your, non-league, your local non-league team. Grab a pint, watch by the side of the ground with a pint. Then walk around the ground because you don't, you don't have to stick, sit in one area. Then hang out with the players afterwards and then feel part of a community that actually values. Now, now I'm not saying football league clubs don't value you but i can tell you non-league clubs will value far more and you do all that for what a fiver entry and two pound fifty a pint um and and that sense of community spirit i I was sold on probably the first uh friendly game i went to which was at swindon supermarine very near where i was brought up and then certainly our first league game, which was in Little Oakley, so the other end of the country, near Clacton, in the middle of nowhere, knowing that these people in their village or their town support their local club and, and, and that's what it's about. And knowing that there were volunteers who'd been there 40, 50 years just for the love of the game. Um, so I love all that. And we are hugely respectful of anybody who's been around and created their club over the last 100 years. Um, so I don't think we put a foot wrong in terms of the, the, the community. I think we do our best um, to shine a light on non-league football. I think especially we are introducing non-league football to younger fans. And I can prove that. Every time we go to a game, I can prove that. I can see the rising gate at our away games. So I know we put in money on the door. And I know that there are kids who will come sometimes just to to abuse us. 
we went to a game at Wormley in Hertfordshire season before last and we got dogs abuse for 90 minutes. And there were other clubs where we, we've had, you know, three or 400 away fans, uh, oh, sorry, home fans against us. I honestly don't care if a proportion of those kids then come to watch their club next week or the week after. If we can attract new, new faces and, and younger blood to the non-league game, that's great. And we're trying to do the same with women's football now. And, 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 and we're not doing it yet, but given time, we'll shine a light on women's non-league football like we've done for the men. But I think the thing about our audiences, they expect us to, to run all the time, super fast. And when, when are you going to get in the Premier League? And, and it's, lads, one step at a time. Okay, we, we've, we've found our feet. We've got promoted. We should have got promoted again last year. So that would have been back to back. We're looking good for promotions this year. We've now got women's team and kids teams. Yes, one day we want our own ground. Yes, one day we want to be in the upper echelons of, of, of non-league, but it's not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen with the money we have right now. Because, you know, there's money in non-league football. There's not money to be made, there's money to be lost. And even if we take one step up from where we are now, the wage bill gets to a point where we will have to find new revenue streams to pay for it. And looking forward to the future of Hashtag United, how do you kind of see the future going in the club in terms of perhaps rising up the leagues or any other projects you would like to try out in the future? So... It's not a sexy tagline, but what we want for the long term of the club is to create a sustainable local football club. Um, we want to lay roots in our area, wherever that is. At the moment, it's, it's near Brentwood, but we're split over several sites. So if you ask me about five years hence, yes, we'd love to have our own ground, but that's not going to come with a click of the fingers, right? And Spencer hasn't got that in his back pocket. But we'd love to have a ground or be you know, permanently ground sharing in the heart of an Essex football community with our youth teams in a good place, with our pathway in a good place, with our women's team knocking at the door of professional football because they're in the fourth tier now, so they're actually higher than us, and with our men's tier at a level that is sustainable wherever that may be. Um, my proper local team is Cash Alton uh, now who are two tiers above where we are now. And if we're in that league and um, holding our own in a couple of years and we're still engaging our audience, then I'll be happy. From a content point of view, on the immediate horizon is obviously Twitch, which has just started, which I think has helped future-prove us a little bit in terms of the, the, the lockdowns. So we'll be growing that. And I believe we're the only football club in the world doing what we're doing on Twitch, which is essentially showing our players playing video games live regularly. So Twitch is going to be big for us, but also for talk content. You know, I think we do more podcast style content on there. And then the documentary we're really excited about um, because it shows, it lets kind of light in behind the scenes. The narrative we, we, we tell on the match videos is very limited because we're always running around. We're trying to get content out of players an hour before they play. It's, it's very real time. It's very raw. It's very simple. 
but this is a chance to look back at the narrative, the through line narrative of the club. So episode one that we're kind of grading now covers how we came out of lockdown, the merger of the teams and, and the build up to the FA Cup game. And it's interesting for me because it's the first time I'll have put myself on camera since probably the Soccer AM days. But I obviously have a say in, in the UDOC. Uh, but you'll learn more about all of us, you know, from Devs to Spencer and Alex. And obviously Spencer and Alex, for those who know, have got an exciting year ahead because they're, they're, they're expecting in January. It's not going to be like the, the Tottenham <laughs> documentary because it's one guy making it. But I can promise you it's one guy making it with care and attention and love. And I just hope people love it. Yeah, so all or nothing, hashtag United, coming to a small screen near you. But on that note, I think it's uh, time to wrap up. I'd just like to thank uh, Neil for taking the time to come on the podcast to encourage our listeners to go follow hashtag United uh, across our social media platforms. And uh, yeah, keep following in the journey.